Robert Boyers joins us again. He is founder and editor of the journal Salma Gundy and faculty member at Skidmore College. He's author of, among many other things, The Tyranny of Virtue, Identity, the Academy, and the Hunt for Political Heresies. His new book is Maestros and Monsters, Days and Nights with Susan Sontag and George Steiner. That's our topic today. Welcome, editor and professor Boyers. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. All right. First, the introductory question. Just tell us, our, tell our listeners, just, just refresh them, our younger ones may not be fully familiar with Susan Sontag and George Steiner. A quick capsule of each one. Okay. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, one of those things where you, you just sort of know that uh, 25 or 30 years earlier, you wouldn't need to do that. Um, everyone would know both of those figures. Um, well, um, I guess it's fair to say that they were both of them, uh, two of the most influential uh, widely read, um, widely debated uh, writers, thinkers, critics in the world. Um, uh, Zontag was, I would say, the quintessential celebrity uh, intellectual uh, for about 30 or 40 years. It's not surprising that when Woody Allen wanted to sort of exemplify the, the category intellectual, he would invoke the name Susan Zontag uh, in his movies. Um, Steiner um, was more scholarly than Zontag. He was often referred to as the polymath's polymath. He wrote um, more than 20 books. Um, he was the book critic of the New Yorker magazine for 30 years. Um, he had an enormous following um, in this country and elsewhere, in Europe most especially. He was a frequent talking head uh, on European television shows. He was fluent in six languages. He could speak on television in Italy, Germany, France, Spain, and so on. And so they were both extraordinary people, and they really, in many ways, um, instigated the conversation that literate people were having about all sorts of things uh, for about a half a century. Right. You cite Joseph Epstein, another prominent intellectual, a little younger than, than the others, I think. But you cite him referring to both of them and their, quote, unremitting highbrowism. Is this accurate, uh, do you think? Is it part of what made them interesting? Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely um, true about Steiner. Uh, there's no question about it. Zontag, at least for a time, um, affected um, uh, something else, another kind of dis disposition. Um, when she came to fame in the early and middle 1960s, uh, she was a figure who could write about uh, science fiction um, and popular culture, um, who could invoke uh, popular music by the Supremes and other such uh, singing groups and so on. So she seemed to be not at all unremittingly highbrow during that period. But I would say over the course of her career, for the most part, that epithet that Joseph Epstein used is accurate. Um, uh, she, she didn't sort of condescend to popular culture quite in the way that George Steiner did, um, but and she knew a great deal more about popular culture than he did, but definitely, yes, unremittingly highbrow is about right. Yeah. Her big breakout essay was, was it 64 Notes on Camp, the, the, or 65? Yes. Uh, which is just right before you started Salma Gundy. 
Uh, it's, you know, I went back to it not too long ago. It's still a great read. What was it about that essay that made, I mean, it's not even really in an essay form in a way. It's, it's notes, a series of notes, but that they, they hold together. What is it the, about, that, about that essay that made it such an event? Well, I think for one thing, um, many of the examples that she used uh, were striking. Um, they were unfamiliar to a lot of us. I mean, I, I remember that essay when I read it in Partisan Review. I was 22 years old when it, when it you know, came out. Uh, so there, there was that. But then I think also there was something brash and audacious in the way that she suggested she was um, introducing us to a whole new sensibility. That was a, a key term that Zuntag uh, used again and again, especially in that period. And uh, she, I think, very wisely suggested that this new sensibility that she associated with camp uh, was, was largely to be associated with gay culture with homosexual art, with writers earlier like Oscar Wilde, and then with all sorts of other writers. Uh, she uh, described this as playful, in some ways anti-serious, and she uh, opposed it to what she claimed was then, and this was reasonable, legitimate, the dominant form uh, of critical and artistic discourse, which she, uh, which she said was Jewish, which was earnest, moralistic, um, straightforward, um, and 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 that was very different from what she described as the homosexual ethos. I think there was a sort of a striking opposition, and again, uh, the way she formulated it and the examples she used um, made it seem thrilling and genuinely new to pretty much everybody um, who read it. And again, yeah. I. I I was young, but I was, I was in New York at that time, living in New York, going to graduate school when the essay came out, and uh, everyone was talking about it. It, it. There were very few essays uh, in my lifetime, or books, um, that have come out that stirred that kind of conversation. I, I have to tell you, Morris Dickstein once told me a, a story. He was sort of around the partisan review world, and so he knew Sontag. And he got on an airplane, he tells me, and he's flying back to, I think it was back to New York. And Susan Sontag sits down next to her, next to him and says, hey, hi, you know, you're going. And she says, oh, yeah, hi, Morris. And they talk for a minute. And she said, you know, I, I've just finished something that I think could be a real breakout for me. And he uh, said, well, and she says, well, I'm, I think I'm going to call it Notes on Camp. Just, just uh, to let you know uh, uh, that little thing. How did you first get in touch with her? I mean, how did you first meet her? You talked about sending her an invitation to write. Yes. What happened there? Well, I, I, I sent her many such invitations and she was you know, nice enough to, uh, to answer. So we had a bit of a correspondence over the period of uh, the 60s and the early 70s, um, that whole stretch of time where we, we'd never met. We still hadn't met. We hadn't become friends till 1974. Um, and yes, I asked her to write for my magazine, Selma Gundy, and you know, she was writing for Partisan Review and for a number of other magazines, and she kept you know, turning me down. But she liked Selma Gundy. Um, and finally, uh, in 1974, when I invited her to come up to Skidmore College here in Saratoga Springs and sit for a long interview uh, for the 10th anniversary issue of Selma Gundy, she said uh, yes. And she came up and we became friends. And she liked that interview so much that 
Uh, of course, it came out in the pages of Selma Gundy as planned, but she then uh, republished it a few years later in the Susan Sontag Reader as the Selma the interview. So you know, it, it was a good event. It was a good event. And and you you imply that she kept up the contact, even though she didn't really agree to publish for, for quite a while, because she just loved the idea of the, the little magazine, right? The place for intellectual, essayistic thought, criticism. That that She certainly, uh, she might have been enjoying the camp, you know, going into the low, the low, but but when it came to intellectual standards, she, she was she was ruthless. She was ruthless, she, and 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 she liked the idea of, of, of she always liked the idea of the little magazine. She didn't give her work to almost any little magazine except for Salma Gundy and the Partisan Review. Um, I think what she liked about Salma Gundy, for one thing, apart from the fact that we became friends, was. Uh, was that it was clearly a mom and pop operation. Uh, there was no money involved in it. There were there were no uh, there were no big uh, backers or supporters. And everybody who wrote for the magazine wrote for virtually nothing or for actually nothing at all. Uh, she liked that, um, and she liked the company. Um, uh, she liked the other kinds of people that uh, were writing for the magazine and appearing in our conferences and and so on. So. Uh, yeah, and we're very grateful for that. I also mention in the book, um, over a series of pages, that there was an odd factor, and that is that shortly before we, we got to meet one another, I had become very um, deeply involved in the work of her former husband, Philip Reef. Um, and um, we had devoted an entire issue of our magazine to Psychological Man, uh, built around his work. And uh, she always said, you know, you, you people at Selma Gundy are the only people who are interested in my work and in, in Philip's work. And there was deep, deep hostility there between uh, Susan and her former husband. I mean, deep, deep hostility. And I think one of the things she liked about our, our first interview that we did together is that she got to trash of the work of Philip Reef in that interview. Um, which she did mercilessly all through the interview. And that was a special opportunity for her. I, I think she was mistaken about Reef's work. I, I think the, the triumph of the therapeutic is sort of it's even it's even had a little bit of a little bit of a comeback from, from what I've 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 seen some things. His name isn't going away, let me put it that way. No, it's not. In fact, I've just my wife and I have just returned from Vienna two weeks ago, where we participated in a conference um, uh, uh, built around the work of Philip Reef. Um, yeah, we were just there, and uh, I, what I, was I, was was his son there? Yes, he was at yeah. the conference. Yeah, I, yeah, Reef was there, and he spoke um, and as as I did, and uh, yeah. So I agree with you. I don't think his work is going away. Um, there are a lot of people who remain interested in it after a very long period of time when he seems to have disappeared, but, um, but, he's, but he's not disappearing anytime soon again. Yeah. You know, you, you, you noticed, you, you mentioned that the camp does contain, uh, again, a lot of low, low culture references, but they, they're not really mass culture. She doesn't, she, she despises American mass culture as much as the old partisan re review gang did too correct that's absolutely right i mean and and of course one of the 
uh, one of the big things in in Partisan Review uh, the years in the years when Zuntag was involved in it is that Partisan Review was beginning for the first time um, to introduce essays uh, on the subject of mass culture, and and, and so and and that caused a rift in the Partisan Review world. And of course, Susan was was very much uh, um, privy to that. You know, that was a period when you could read in Partisan Review, for the first time in the 60s, articles about the Beatles, uh, articles about the music, the musical hair. And uh, this was not, you know, stuff that Susan herself was deeply interested in. Um, but, you know, it definitely involved a, a broadening of the perspective of a magazine like Partisan Review. But I think you're absolutely right. If you read Susan's collections of essays and the books she wrote, she was not um, particularly interested in mass culture, and she didn't even have enough interest in it to um, to write attacks on mass culture of the kind that came from uh, Clement Greenberg and Dwight McDonald and other figures in the partisan review world who who targeted mass culture. And I, I I love I love their attacks on American mass culture. I, I have to say there, there, there actually there's a collection of those right Irving Howe. Went after it. Sidney uh, uh, Sidney Hook criticized right. American mass culture, but uh, much of your book, though, is is not it's not all ideas and, and text. There's a lot of personal reminiscences, uh, conversations over dinner, uh, meetings face to face, and several episodes reveal Sontag's imperiousness, uh, quick to take offense. Uh, I think you I think you present present it very nicely in that you you can write critically about her while still being a friend and admirer as as well. I think you carry that off in the book. But even even sometimes mistreatment of you. Uh, What was behind that occasional unpleasantness of hers? I think, you know, again, sometimes my my wife would sometimes say Susan's off her meds. Um, and you know, uh, which which is easy, of of course, to say. And I think in in many cases was probably true. But Susan was a person of who you used the word imperious. She was always imperious, um, but she was often um, just volatile and mercurial, and you couldn't predict what would tick her off and get her going. Uh, I saw her uh, insult um, all sorts of people in our. A New York intellectual world, um, people like our mutual friend uh, Richard Howard, the poet Richard Howard, was an old and uh, dear friend of hers, and I saw him insult her in public, um, as she sometimes insulted me in public. And you know, if you if you loved her, or um, if you valued her uh, as a friend and as a presence in your life, you just learned. To absorb the punishment, and you went along. Obviously, if you were punished uh, all the time, persistently, well, you, you'd have to give it up. You, you yeah. know, but, uh, but I, you know, there are only a couple of times that, that I was inclined to give it up. Could 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 she have gone into the university if she wanted? I mean, would would she, she would have been hired, right? Oh yeah, I mentioned uh, you know, I, and there's one place in the book where uh, where I talk about um, uh, an opportunity she had, she really did have, um, to become an Albert Schweitzer professor, 
a lot of money involved in that, uh, in which she would have um, come to teach with me at Skidmore College, uh, where she often came. She came several times a year to visit us, to speak at lectures and conferences and so on, and give readings. And she was very, very strongly tempted to do it. But then, in the end, she really decided, probably wisely, uh, that she really didn't want to have a regular interaction with a particular cadre of students or faculty members. Yeah. Um, she just didn't, didn't need that, didn't want that. She needed the money. She needed the money. She often talked about how badly she needed the money. And when I finally had this opportunity to invite her to become our nominee for a Schweitzer chair, she was thrilled about it. And um, but you know, she did occasionally teach a course here and there, but she, she could have become a professor in New York City, wherever she wanted, and uh, she chose not to. She chose not to. So, so let's turn to a professor. How, how did you meet George Steiner? George Steiner was my teacher in graduate school at New York University. He was the visiting Albert Schweitzer professor there uh, in the early 1960s. I was in a seminar with him. He was... Uh, um, a, a, a ball buster, um, very difficult, a guy who you know, sort of demanded of you what you couldn't possibly uh, provide uh, in the way of knowledge, fluency, you know, languages, and so on. And I try to tell some funny stories in the book about that. But, um, but he also was very generous, and he was a person we, well, he began to write for Salmagundi in the late 60s. Um, and he loved what we were doing, and we just became very close friends. We traveled all over the world together. Um, he came up to Skidmore very frequently, and uh, my wife and I saw him in New York every March when he came in to select books for The New Yorker uh, that he was going to review in the following year. And then we visited him in England frequently. We visited him in Geneva, Switzerland, and we traveled all over Italy and other countries with him. So we. We were close friends. He was a difficult man, but uh, he was easy for me. He was very, very generous. Well, now, now, R Robert, difficult, demanding, but he had a real following among students, didn't he? Oh, well, why were they there? Well, they, I think everybody knew. If you again, if, unless you were unless you were conditioned by what you heard from other people to regard Steiner as you know pretentious and impossible and overbearing and intolerable and so on, you also knew from the first moment you were in Steiner's presence that you were in the presence of the most learned person you'd ever met. Who, yes, sometimes he wore his learning on his sleeve, uh, but he was also thrilling to listen to. He was the most thrilling lecturer I have ever seen in my life, and many people uh, of my generation felt that way about him. Uh, I mentioned in, in the book, you know, um, I could have given many other examples. When he gave the, um, the, the Norton Lectures at Harvard in the early 2000s, he was already, you know, a man of a certain age. He's been around, he'd been around for quite some time. He was no longer the regular book critic of The New Yorker. And I got to tell you, in the first lecture, there were six lectures in the Nortons. And uh, the first one was in an auditorium that held a thousand people. It was stacked. Packed, nobody else could get in. They moved the next five lectures to a much larger auditorium that held more than 1,500 people. That was packed. Um, hmm. The next five lectures, he was a thrilling 
lecturer, a great sort of platform presence. And he was, and he was generous. He could be incredibly generous to people who uh, raise their hands and ask questions. I had him in my, my undergraduate classes numbers of times, and my students were just so taken with him. So that when I went to Geneva to see him with his own uh, undergraduate and graduate students there at Geneva, I was not at all surprised to see uh, that he was their favorite professor. Um, yeah. I, I, not at all surprising. You, you, you know, you, you speak of uh, his, quote, will to performance. Yes. And you can see that in, in videos. You know, you can see him on YouTube giving, yeah. giving these lectures, and it's always, it is always pointed. Uh, he, he comes down to put, putting things in, in crystal clear, powerful ways. What was the battle in 1985 between Steiner and Edward Said? Well, that was an interesting that was an interesting situation because they were both at the time you know scheduled to uh, to come to us for three days for a conference uh, on intellectuals with you know lots of other interesting people um, joining them for three days of a sort of constant conversation and a few days before uh, they were due here. Uh, I got a phone call from Edward Said, who was then himself, as you know, riding high. He was, uh, it was, a, it was in the few years after the publication of his book Orientalism, which had the been... absolute top of the humanities in 1985. Yeah, absolutely. And so Edward, you know, I was I was not a friend of Edward's, but he'd written for my magazine several times, and uh, we knew one another. And uh, and so he called, and he said, uh, "Have you seen the latest issue of the Nation magazine?" I, no. He said, well, you should get a hold of it because um, uh, I have an article on your friend Steiner in there that he's not going to like. And um, so, of course, I, I got a hold of it. And, um, and it was the strangest, it was the strangest piece. You, I mean, anyone in our, in our audience here can, can go and look this up. It's quite extraordinary. It begins, it's a long piece, reviewing a book called George Steiner, A Reader. So it's a compendium of the best of George Steiner at, at the time of 1985. And it is a completely rave review, which argues Steiner is the most impressive, the most important, the most influential writer on a wide range of subjects, that he writes in a way that not only learned people can enjoy and learn from, but also the ordinary reader. So it's quite extravagant in its praise. But it begins with several paragraphs, which says, which say basically, let's get uh, the least important thing out of the way right at the beginning. This is a pretentious, overbearing, intolerable. Uh, <laughs> and there are two two short paragraphs to that effect. And then, of course, uh, you know, uh, this this extraordinary review. When, when, I, when George arrived a day later, after the phone call, he arrived at our house a couple of days before the conference began to just sort of hang out with us. Um, and we looked at the review together. I said, you know, you, you, can, you can mine this review for, for blurbs on the back of your books, which he did, by the way. Um, but, you know, of course, he regarded those opening paragraphs as intolerable and uh, unforgivable. And so when we got them together, well, uh, it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. They they didn't they didn't bail on us. They they were there for the three days, but um, but but they were not, shall we say, friendly. 
Well, in, in your account, Saeed does make a friendly gesture toward Steiner, and Steiner will have none of it. We'll have none of it, yeah. Steiner, I mean, Saeed came in and said, just let's get it over with, just introduce me to Steiner. I, I brought him over, and uh, uh, by the way, Saeed had earlier... Um, several years earlier, written another very favorable review of another George Steiner book. Um, so, I mean, you know, Steiner, I mean, Saeed was a, a big fan of George Steiner's, you know, and, uh, and uh, but when I brought him over um, with, with a friend of mine to introduce him, Saeed put out his hand and, and Steiner just said, I, I do not shake hands with scum. Uh, and, he, <laughs> and, uh, and Saeed said, well, that didn't go very well, did it? And yeah. <laughs> marched away. So, I mean, you know, that's just, yeah, yeah. one of the things, you know, I, as yeah. I say, in the, I can't really blame, you know. You know, hey, uh, both of them cared enough about ideas to make it really matter, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's where I put it. Now, I, I envy you. Your your many things uh, in in your life. One of them being uh, having dinner with Steiner and Arthur Kessler, another yes. historical figure who comes off in your account as an an equally uh, difficult fellow. They were good friends. They were very good friends. Yeah, they had known one another for a very long time, and I think I just mentioned. I think I do in passing that they also when when Kessler was around, uh, that's to say around Cambridge. Um, and sometimes when they were together uh, in London, they would play chess. Um, they would just, you know, spend an evening playing chess together. So they, they were they were very friendly and so on. And um, so yeah, it was a that was a great a great uh, occasion for for me uh, to to meet Kessler under George's auspices under George's roof. Um, it was kind of funny because only if. A couple of years earlier, I had written a rather harsh review of, of a Kessler book uh, for the New Republic magazine, and I just hoped that Kessler perhaps hadn't read it or maybe had forgotten about it, and I couldn't tell. Of course, we didn't bring it up, and he never brought it up either, mm. so okay. fine. But he was how, a writer. Yeah. Yeah. How, how was it? What, what was the critical attitude that enabled Steiner, who lost his extended family to Auschwitz, uh, how could he praise and love works by anti-Semitic figures such as Ezra Pound and and Richard Wagner? Yeah. What did did it take? I think, you know, Steiner never, um, never hesitated to make it very clear in his writings on those figures what he thought of them and their views, but talking about their work, their poetry, their music, and so on, he always felt it was uh, essential to make a distinction. And that's something that I learned from him. I learned from it very early. Um, The course I was enrolled in with Steiner as a graduate student at New York University was a course in uh, neo-fascist and fascist ideas. And we read works by all sorts of um, people um, that, you know, you wouldn't have wanted to spend any time with um, as human beings. Um, But their works were important. And uh, and Steiner believed that. And he managed... um, 
to maintain that, that sort of distinction between the work and the person. You know, he wrote brilliantly uh, about the French novelist Céline. I mean, brilliantly. I mean, Céline who, you know, who writes bagatelles for a massacre of, of Jews, you know, and, uh, and Steiner thought he was one of the great original writers of the early 20th century. And there were other figures like that in, in Steiner's life. And, you know, I've, I've written on that subject on my own and, and other places. But I must say it was Steiner who taught me that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I, I never forgot it, you know. So, you know, I could read, uh, I could read the letters of the English poet Philip Larkin, which made my skin crawl. And, uh, and I could still teach Philip Larkin's poems, which I love. Yeah. Uh, not always easy, but I, I could teach Gregor von Rizzori's Memoirs of an Anti-Semite, um, a man I, I met, interviewed, um, uh, but I knew I, I didn't want to know him, but I <laughs> loved his work. Yeah. It, it's uh, your, your book. It is, it, it's a very nice picture of, of an intellectual time, mid to late 20th century, um, for now, it is Maestros and Monsters, Days and Nights with Susan Sontag and George Steiner. Robert Boyers, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you.